Welcome to From the Valley Podcast. This is uh, episode 58. It's Friday the 23rd of August 2019. It's been a very busy month at Confidential Tax and Business Services. Uh, one of our uh, people we like to sort of deal with at Confidential Tax and Business Services and shared a couple of uh, client experiences and we also consider uh, him uh, very well versed in turnaround solutions and uh, knowing everything about insolvency and liquidation. Welcome along Peter Lucas from Kestrel Solutions to the podcast. Thanks, Tim, for uh, the invitation today. So, yeah, just a bit about, uh, and thanks for being very well prepared too, Peter. <laughs> You've uh, sent me a very, uh, obviously, a very detailed sort of CV resume, a bit of a uh, bit of guidance, I guess, as to what we could potentially talk about in the in the podcast amongst, obviously, um, you know, things that uh, that you've seen in business and, and that sort of thing as well. But before we sort of get into that, probably a bit about uh, where you, your early... Uh, life, I guess, whereabouts were you born and, and uh, what was family life like for you growing up? I was born in uh, Sydney in a, a inner western suburbs, t- a suburb called Dolly Chill. Uh, I was the youngest of four children, uh, two older brothers and an older sister. So um, we had a good family, middle class uh, life. Uh, my mother was a stay-at-home mum the entire time. So, uh, But uh, no, we had a good that from there I went to Sydney University and I um, I thought it'd be a smart thing at the end of the first year when I was going to have 12 weeks holiday to earn a bit of money if I was going to become an accountant to try to get a o- job in an accounting office and I was fortunate enough to get one uh, in a small firm that had just moved so I started after Christmas and uh, then went back there the next year and uh, ended up doing a couple of days a week my final year at university and they offered me a job and that's where I started and, uh, you know, did all the usual things as a young person. So you, you sort of certainly, um, you've got a lot, you sort of got a love for sport generally. Um, I know that Great love of sport. You know, yeah. whether it's tennis, whether it's uh, NRL and uh, we'll obviously get into some of these uh, interests throughout the podcast. Uh, what about things like AFL? Do you obviously... Yeah, look, I follow all the, all the football codes yep. uh, to varying Union, degrees. Yep. Union, um, you know, I was brought up in uh, on rugby league and I played as a junior in the, in the Newtown Juniors. So Newtown uh, Jets are my uh, team and have always been, even when they were out of the league. So people ask me, who do I support in the NRL? I say no one, because uh, there's only one club being the Newtown Jets. And uh, I wasn't very much, very good as a footballer. So I uh, gave that up when I was about 14. I was worked out I was too small, too slow, not good enough. And the bigger kids wanted to belt you, so which yeah. wasn't much fun. So, but I ended up refereeing rugby league for ten years. So, um, started as a sixteen-year-old was a way of earning a bit of money. Yeah, and um, I had a reasonably good career for about ten years and got to some heights um, with with that. So yeah, but and of course I, like most kids, I played cricket during the summer. Yep. So my uh, weekends um, when I was in my late teens and. Early twenties was summer was Saturday cricket and winter was Sunday football. So, mm. so you would have sort of grown up in the cricket era with uh, Bill Laurie batting and some of those back in those sort of day, in the seventies. Greg the Chapel Brothers, Chapel Brothers. In fact, there was a I was watching Bill and Boz on um, Fox Sports the other night, and they had a thing about your first sporting experience when you're exposed to sport. And I said, uh, sent a text interest that you read out, and I said. My, uh, in the 60s, my father took me to Henson Park to watch the Newtown Bluebags, and in 1968, I went to my first test at the SCG, being a test between the West Indies and Australia. And uh, I don't remember too much about the game, but I know from having looked back that uh, Dougie Walters scored a double century in that game. Okay, wow. So yeah. Dougie Walters. Yeah, so yeah, all those eras and watching uh, uh, Lillian Thompson and yeah, Lillian Thompson destroy the, the Poms in 75. <laughs> Yep. West Indies, yeah, so... Yeah, heydays. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, great. So cricket, one of, that's probably the glory time of cricket, I reckon, compared to what we're seeing at the moment, this is my opinion, but um, as far as the glory is. But, uh, yeah, so uh, and obviously... So then, obviously, you became an accountant pretty early on, just at the sort of end of uh, when you were doing your university. Yeah, I, was, I, early, um, early I did economics uh, when I was at school and thought I'd become an economics teacher and started... And I actually got a scholarship to do uh, teaching, but because I didn't do geography, I couldn't... It was for maths and science, the t- scholarship. I couldn't swap it over to do economics. So I majored in accounting 
you know, I found accounting more practical than studying economics. So I then switched my thinking to become an accountant, which I did when I graduated, and did my, what was then called the PY, uh, with the uh, Institute of Chartered Accountants, became a chartered accountant in 1983, so yeah, it's a well, while ago now. 36 years ago, that is. Yeah. Don't want to keep score, but yes. No, no. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's obviously a very good achievement um, at a young age to sort of uh, be involved in that, but... Was it? I guess one of the first, tell me a bit bit about the accounting jobs of the eighties that you had. Sort of, so when you when you sort of look at those era, the era of the eighties, what was accounting like back then, and uh, what sort of what was a typical, I guess, I guess typical things that you were doing as an accountant, and uh, and wh- whether you were just doing general stuff then, or when did you sort of branch when out? Well, the firm I worked for mainly did insolvency, but also tax and accounting, etc. So when I was that first year of Christmas holidays, I was just doing some sort of reconciliations. I remember going through books, boxes of records, trying to find things and photocopying and going out on messages and saying, then you, when I was my final year, I looked after the firm's trust account, so I'd have to reconcile that. And the guys would give me various things to do, reconciling bank accounts, um, trying to reconcile debtors and get the records together on debtors and... Uh, when I first graduated, I was doing a bit of tax and accounting work. So that, those days, it was the old manual ledgers. There yep. was, you know, no computers, and we had typewriters. And so you'd be doing your, you know, full reconciliations, doing tax returns. Uh, there was no bash returns in those days, so you'd get literally you'd get a shoebox full of receipts and to pull that together. Um, I was supposed to do an audit. We did some preparation. We're getting this audit. The client pulled it. I think the week before we were about to start, so I never actually did any audit work. So I did tax and accounting, doing tax returns, and became a tax agent uh, back then. And I started doing a few tax returns on the side. The boss had strongly recommended doing that. And okay. and I gradually got into doing insolvency work um, because I'd be helping out in between doing that. Uh, we, we were running a restaurant down the rocks, which still operates, so... The guy that was running that, if he was unavailable, I'd have to go down on a Thursday to reimburse petty cash and pay the wages and check all the numbers, etc. So I gradually got into doing that work and then because we're a predominantly insolvency firm, Friday afternoons was often sending some report out and all had to be photocopied and we'd stand around the boardroom table, you know, collating all the paper all the pages and stapling it and and often be having a beer as we're doing it and you know, if we found a mistake then the poor girls have to go and redo that whole page and have to all pull it out so I just gradually got more and more involved in the insolvency you know, which is when I was doing the CA and probably by three or four years I started not doing any you know I had a couple of clients I was doing their accounting work for in the firm and then gradually dropped those off and uh, it was a mixture of personal bankruptcy and part 10 work and you know, corporate work doing uh, uh, creditors' voluntary liquidations and et cetera. So, and then a bit of receivership work. So it was in the, it was really in the old days of, you know, the manual manual spreadsheets doing cash flows. And so if you made a mistake, you know, all had to be done in pencil because in case you made a mistake, you'd rub it out and change. Yeah. So uh, a lot of, you know, the real basic stuff, you know, you had to, check your debits and credits you had to learn or try to teach right neatly which was always a challenge for me but so yeah, yeah. I mean my first year of accounting at, at uni was back in 1996 I think something like that 1996 even back then uh, it was all a lot of manual mm. when it was, as far as learning debits and credits and all of that sort of thing there was there wasn't com- any computer programs I don't you know, even my was pretty much uh, non-existent back back then so it's it's amazing to see where we've sort of come from. Oh, it's incredible, uh, uh, the uh, development. Them, you know, and then when we first started, you know, com- we were pretty computerised, I guess, at the start of this, the century. We were becoming pretty computerised uh, as an accountant. Um, yeah, even t- I remember timesheets back here in 2000 were still done on, on, a, on a computer basis as opposed to maybe you had to, used to do those, fill out the cards and 
And we, we used to do the timesheets with manual. Yeah. And I remember the boss telling me, you know, always keep a copy of your timesheet. So we'd hand it in and, and then... Keep another copy, photocopy. Keep a copy, or, for, yeah. copy for myself, photocopy. Yep. Which came in handy when I ended up having to apply to become a liquidator having... Because I actually kept all those records. Yeah. And um, one, of his, one of the other partners would collate all the information off all the timesheets to, you know, work out what we were billing, et cetera. And I think we got our... It would have been probably about 82 or something when this firm got their first computer. So it used to be electronic, you know, memory typewriters. Uh, Then we got computer and I moved uh, to a larger specialist firm in about 85, 86 called Ferrier Hodson. Are they still around? That's just just been taken over by KPMG. Oh, has it? And earlier this year. And I remember... Oh, this would have been in about 89 when we started getting computers on our desks. Uh, and they'd be, they were developing yeah. Yeah, a specialist insolvency software program. So, yeah, so 88, 89 was when the computers started appearing on the desks. And um, it was the middle of that year I moved to Brisbane mm. after I'd, I'd married a Brisbane girl and moved up here. So, 1989. Yeah. Just after the expo. Just after, yeah, came up for the, had a look at the expo, so it was great. Mm, so Brisbane, big move. So the first, you know, I guess the first thirty years of your life, you're sort of living in Sydney. Sydney, yeah, and, and um, all my family's still down in Sydney, and, and I guess the next thirty have been here. So, so yeah, it's um, fifty-fifty split nearly. Um, so what do you? I guess what do you like about Brisbane that sort of made you stick here for uh, the last thirty years? Is it just? Do you, is it the general? I guess uh, that it's a small town, but everyone seems to know everybody, and that. Uh, yeah, you know, look, it was, and it was a very conscious decision when I moved up to Brisbane. My wife, as I said, was uh, Brisbane girl. All her family in in Brisbane, all our fa- all my family in Sydney, and I had a, quite a good job. Uh, you know, I was a senior manager at Ferry Hodson with a, a good prospect, and we really sat down and said, "Where do we want to live and spend our life?" and you know, we looked at all the pros and cons of how fast Sydney was growing, mm. quieter pace of Brisbane, a safer town than Sydney with Definitely. from a crime perspective, and where we'd want to bring up children. Uh, we weren't long married, um, and we and you know, I got on very well with all her family and and friends, so it was probably an easier transition. And what do I love about Brisbane, I think, you know, the weather. You know, how, how can anyone complain about Brisbane in the weather we're having now except probably not getting quite enough rain? Um, it is easy to get around, even though it's getting harder and harder, but compared to S- Sydney or Melbourne, you know, it's still a lot easier to get around. It's still, a, without being a town, it's still a relatively small city, uh, which means a lot of people know each other and uh, it makes business easier. Uh, Easier. Easier by knowing uh, a lot of people around the place. And, uh, you know, as I said, weather's great, um, you know, and, uh, you know, not far from the Gold Coast or Sunshine Coast, and so mm. it's easy to get around. Mm. Definitely. So just um, just finishing up on the family stuff, the three older siblings, did they all sort of remain in Sydney or where did they end up going? They're, they're all in Sydney. I had a brother lived in Canberra for about 13 years, but he's moved back to Sydney now um, with his uh, with his work. So, And uh, the two in the middle are both retired, so it's the oldest one of I that are still, still working. Right, okay, excellent. So I guess we'd like to probably talk a bit about... Um, today i guess what what where things have sort of evolved uh sort of in the accounting space but also i guess your sort of uh specialization i mean what's what was insolvency like back in the 80s and and there was obviously things like the um you know the 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 crashes that were sort of in the recession in the early 90s yeah uh i mean and, and you you've seen it all you've been you've seen brisbane through the last 30 years um and, and sydney before that I guess what's sort of different about insolvencies back in those days to what you're seeing in in recent times. Well, I think the, uh, one of the big differences. I think back in the early '80s when I started, creditors didn't really understand a lot of the process, and they just went along. Like our fee resolutions didn't have a cap, and they were just saying our fees are at these rates, 
which will vary from time to time, and, it, and then we were just able to draw fees. And no one really cr- scrutinised a lot what insolvency practitioners did then, where creditors are a lot more knowledgeable now. Um, there's a lot more regulation around it. You know, the Act... I've still got a copy of the 1961 Companies Act, which was what the you know, Companies Act was all based on back in the early 80s. And it's, you know, it's like about two inches thick compared to the Corporations Act now, which is mm. so much thicker, like, just like the Tax Act has grown. So we've got a lot more regulation around it. I think back then there was a more of a, a desire to try to trade business on and get them out of trouble. Where, and take a bit more risk as insolvency pr- practitioners where a lot of liquidators now will just shut the business down immediately because mm. they don't want to take a risk. And I don't think they understand, they haven't learnt where I learn on trading on businesses mm. and being able to learn how to sell businesses, mm. how to fix a lot of the trading problems. So um, there's a desire to have a culture of turnaround Yes. Uh, now. And that's... People seem to think that's something new but we were talking turnarounds in Sydney in the late 80s and trying to work ways of doing it and voluntary administration came in in the early 90s hasn't been as successful as it should be because it's too restrictive but the real key around turnarounds is getting people to, to hold their hand up at an early stage so you've still got resources to work with to try to get the business out because businesses decline gradually and once they often get to the stage, there's a winding up application, something like the resources in the business, both financial and human, are pretty much exhausted. And so there's not much you can do. Where if they recognise their problems early, there's a lot that can be done to try to fix the problem, provided people put their hand up and listen and act. So I think there's an attempt to more of a turnaround culture but I think the other side of the coin is that where it's for the not so good is that we're seeing a lot of talk around now about illegal Phoenix activity yep. where businesses are being sold to a new company with basically the same owners for little or no consideration. Certain creditors get looked after and a lot of creditors don't. And, of course, the tax man's right up there, number one, of not being looked after. Yeah. And people think that's all well and good and people are being encouraged to do that um, and paying big fees to do it and often it's done improperly uh, and, you know, there's not enough action being taken to stamp that out uh, by the regulators in that regard. So they're just behind the game a bit, aren't they? Yeah, and the other thing is it's like people asking for when they're in a bit of financial trouble going to the bank and asking for some more cash. I'll give me another 100000 we'll be right. Well, cash rarely solves a problem in a business because what they don't do, and what often doesn't happen with people go and get some advice about transferring the business to a new entity, why did it get to its, into its state it's in? What's the underlying problems and what are you going to do about fixing it? If you're going to buy another 100000 from the bank because you've got some cash flow problems what's the cause of the cash flow problem is it something that's temporary you know you've had a bad debt or someone's not paying you or is there some underlying problems you know are you undercapitalized are your margins not right are you not managing the business you know properly do you not have the management skills yeah and i think a lot of what's happening around is just delaying inevitable problems in businesses that aren't very viable. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess when you're looking at um, the the current sort of marketplace at the moment, what I'm, what I'm sort of seeing out there at the moment is, I guess, the people trying to get into that space of um, pre-insolvency. Yep. There's there's a, certainly a market there. And you, know, you got you got some, obviously, people here in Brisbane that we, we would both know that are in this space. Um, how effective are those type of operators and uh, and what, what do they sort of, uh, you know, if somebody is in trouble, are they the right type of people to go to? If someone's starting to get into trouble, where should they start? Look, there's a lot of 
there is a lot of space in pre insolvency, and it's hard to um, pigeonhole everyone and generalise. But you've got to be careful. And I'll say there's a range of people. There are some ex-insolvency practitioners who, for various reasons, are no longer practising as insolvency practitioners. A lot of those people will be very, very knowledgeable mm-hmm. and could give some very good advice. You know, At the other end, there's a lot of people out there which you've got to question what is their qualifications. You know, do they have a degree in accounting? Do they have a law degree? Or are they ex-directors of failed businesses, ex-bankrupts that, you know, have somehow started these businesses and are now giving some advice? And this pre-insolvency business industry started back in the early 80s a guy called Brian Harper, who I had some dealings with back in the 80s, and it's expanded. And it's expanded partially because there's a lot more scrutiny practitioners about the advice they give prior to it. So what they often did was refer them to these pre-insolvency advisors who would give advice as to what to do, and then it come back to those practitioners. And as I said, quite often quite questionable, Um, there could be some very very good ones and the critical things are what are their qualifications and what are their ethics because I think one of the saddest things around at the moment I think we saw that through the Banking Royal Commission is the erosion of really good strong ethical behaviour that uh, stands out above making money you know what is the advice is the advice the right advice for the person or is it the right advice for the advisor? And I think people have got to be... And I know directors of companies have told me, and we've seen it in the material, they'll get bombarded when they've got financial troubles by these pre-insolvency advisors promising the world yeah. when they cannot often deliver anything. And I've, I've sat across from someone and questioned the advice that they'd given, not in writing, knowing it's wrong, and when you start questioning, they just go very aggressive. One guy threatened threatened me, kicked me out of his office when I asked him a very simple question, but his advice had been wrong. And, of course, a lot of owners, business owners, don't know, and they're afraid to go and spend money of getting good, proper advice. Mm. So where should where would I would start getting advice? Yeah, that's where we're coming back to the question. Yeah. I guess, yeah. I think you've got a choice of, uh, besides going talking to your actual accountant. Yeah, because obviously I think ha- having having a good relationship with the accountant and having the accountant do the right thing yes. with that business, very important as a starting point. Yep. So, yeah, obviously they need to you be see, fully they, aware of the they situation. They should start. The other person is possibly your solicitor. Yep. So you can get proper legal advice. And then you want to be, in, you do want to be referred to someone who is a specialist in insolvency and turnarounds. So they should be a, you know, they should have professional qualifications and they should be either a member of the Turnaround Management Association or the Australian Reconstruction Insolvency and Turnaround Association, otherwise known as a RETA. If they're not members of those two associations and they're talking about pre-insolvency advice, then... Be careful. And furthermore, if your problem's around tax, it's a direct penalty notice, garnishee notice, or you have a tax debt and want to negotiate, if they're not a lawyer or a tax agent, then they can't give advice. Mm. So I'm now a tax agent. I don't do any tax work except specialising in advising people with tax debt issues. Yeah. Yes. Never ask me to do a tax return. No. Because um, I will refuse to do it. Yep. But I can advise where a lot of these pre insolvency advisors no. are they tax agents? Are they therefore, qualified? Yeah. Are they qualified? Yeah, that's very, very good points. Very, very good points there um, in relation to that. So I guess you've, had, you've seen a lot of stuff. Uh, you've, you've experienced, uh, you've seen a lot of businesses that. Uh, have sort of gone the wrong way, and in 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 some cases they've been able to dig their way out. Yep. 
Um, I guess you've seen a lot. I mean, what do you think? Uh, what do you think the characteristics of a business that uh, I guess stop it from going into that funnel of, of the liquidation into the into the uh, abyss? I guess to a degree, uh, as opposed to being able to work a solution to be able to get them out and get them on the right path. Well, I think it comes back to a more fundamental question firstly, uh, Tim. And people often ask me, why do, why do businesses fail? Yeah, okay, start there. And I say, look, there's two fundamental reasons. Most, and there's been no research done to my knowledge, most small businesses will start off being undercapitalised. Probably 98, 99%. And Tim, I think if you, you and uh, you were honest, you'd probably say... Yeah, we were probably undercapitalised. I know my business was undercapitalised when I started. And when I talk about undercapitalised, borrowing money against your home or your parents' home or some other asset and tipping that money in the business is not capital. It's still debt because you're paying interest on that money and you have a time frame to repay. True capital is money you can put into the business, not require an immediate return, so it can stay there to fund the business. So that's most small business start off. The question is, will they become properly capitalised? And therefore, you know, will, their equ- will the balance sheet and the equity in the balance sheet start to build up over time and be sustainable to meet downturns? And that's what the QBCC is trying to see with their financial requirements in the building game. The other issue uh, is management. And I call it management capital. How strong is the management skills of the business owners in, when they start up? In my experience, I can't think readily of a business that's far where the owners have been technically bad at their trade or profession if that's their core trade or profession. I've seen marketing people buy manufacturing businesses and that fail. Of course, yeah. Um, because they haven't had the right skill sets to manage the manufacturing side. But I haven't seen, can't recall, any electrician that's failed. So they've got the technical skills. Maybe when they employ some of the s- staff as they grow, they might not employ all these good tradesmen. But it's their management skills, which are rarely taught to any great depth in you know, at university or um, trade school, etc., TAFE colleges. And if you think of the skill sets a small business owner's got to have, he's got to be an entrepreneur. There is a visionary. When he's starting off, he's got to be an accountant to do the books himself. He's got to be a salesperson. He's got to be a marketer to get the opportunities to sell. He's got to be a good purchasing officer, you know, He's got to have, once he starts getting stuff, he's got to be good at HR. Yeah. You know? So you've got a whole set of skills, and no one's good at all those things. And, of course, they try to battle on, and therefore, you know, do they develop their business and skills to make the right decisions, bearing in mind they're also often cash-strapped as a startup. And the problem with being undercapitalised is a disconnect in business between when you get your cash in and when you've got to pay it out. Most businesses are paying out the cash before they get it in from their customers. You know, you've got to pay the lease on the premises on the first of the month. You've got to pay wages weekly or fortnightly. But then, you you know, if you're not in a retail business, you're invoicing the customers in waiting 30, 45, 60 days. So you've got this, you know, cash going out before you get cash in. Mm. where, you know, every business owner would love it the other way around. Mm. And therefore, you've got a challenge straight up if you're undercapitalised. Do I have enough cash to meet my obligations? Mm. And so creditors get become the funders of the business. The ATO and, do, yeah. Yep. And, of course, most start-up people, you know, half glass half full going to business will be over-optimistic about the revenue coming in and underestimate what their expenses are going to be, which further exacerbates how much cash do I really need to start the business. So once again, and that's why 
one thing that hasn't changed over my career is the coin about the tax office being the fifth banker in Australia. Fifth biggest, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so a few things I'll probably bring up and talk about, but uh, and obviously you just mentioned a point there that uh, got me sort of, I guess, asking this particular question. A lot of businesses, when they're looking at growing, because growing is you, obviously you're talking about undercapitalised and it's very hard for businesses that, were, that are going in the right direction to be capitalised to, to start off with. Uh, is debtor finance good finance when it comes to funding debtors? I think, once again, it's something you can't just generalise. Yeah, but from what you I, 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 I think, it, I think it's a, a a good form of finance for businesses that are growing quickly, because growth drains cash. Yep. And so, if you're undercapitalised but growing quickly, how do you how do you catch up? You need some funding, and with the way banks are now operating. You know, the traditional overdraft, you know, security, you know, an unsecured overdraft is very hard to get except for a very small amount. So a growing business is not going to be able to have much to that. So debtor financing, I think, is an appropriate type of financing for a fast-growing business. Um, But you've got to recognise that if you're going to fund your debtors and if we're giving away some of the cash to the funder, you've got to manage how you spend your, your cash to make sure you don't get yourself in a hole. Yep. So it comes back to a discipline around yep. cash flow management. You've got the cash in, you can't take it out now and uh, go and buy the the new jet ski or... Yep. Of course. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so there is a purpose for it, obviously. Yeah. Otherwise it wouldn't exist and... Uh, be be as uh, popular as it is, um, and I think I think it's become a better product, mm. and not as costly. It used to be a really costly product. Yeah, you know, now it's far more far more affordable, mm. and we're starting to see some players start to have a supply chain finance option mm. where you're effectively mm. financing your creditor. So, and the, the, I guess the other part of this is that there's all, there's there's obviously another market out there that uh, I guess preys on you know giving out the high interest high interest sort of unsecured loans to businesses that, that become a bit more prevalent. And what do you think of these types of uh, gig economy type lenders that are out there that aren't really that regulated? At well, the they're moment? not very regulated, so people have got to be careful. And you know. You're going to have, once again, a, a, a range of parties. You're going to have some that are very ethical and try and do the right thing, but they're funding high-risk uh, money. And yep. it's the old saying, the higher the risk, the higher the cost. So, you know, if you want an unsecured loan, you've got to expect to pay a higher interest rate than one that's, you know, secured against uh, real property. So they have their place. But as I said earlier... More cash into a business doesn't solve the underlying problem. You might need cash to help get you through, but if you don't fix the underlying problems that cause the hole, then you're only you're potentially only delaying the inevitable. And where I think a lot of things fail is really identifying the underlying cause of the problem. And even ASIC... If you go on their website and you look at, when we do our reports to ASIC, we have a form we've got to fill out and sort of got to drop down boxes to the cause of the failure. And a lot of their causes are real, really symptoms. You know, say trading losses. Inadequate cash flow is a cause of failure. They're the final end. The real question is what caused the inadequate cash flow? What's caused the trading losses? And what can you do to fix it? And I don't think there's enough challenge in thinking of what those underlying problems are to address that issue. And I can give you an example. I was receiver of a shopping centre um, for about six and a half years. So a number of tenants come wanting rent relief. And we always ask the question, what's caused the problem? What do you? And we say, what are you going to do with the money that you're saving not having to pay rent for six months or three months? And what's your problem and what are you going to do to fix your problem? And if they came up with a, you know, from our point of view, 
is a good plan of what they were going to do and a good explanation of what's got the problem, they always got favourable treatment from us. If they were just looking for us to then pay the taxman or something, we were sort of pretty hesitant. And we also want to know who else was going to share some pain. If it's a franchise, is their franchise all supporting them? So it's, they're appropriate, but they're not the, the saviour. They're not the panacea to the problem. What, what I, I mean, I've obviously been an accountant, uh, you know, it's, bit, it's coming up to 20 years, so you see quite a bit. But one, one thing I have noticed that, uh, is that, I guess, people going into the wrong business, they sort of have an idea that they, they sort of like the idea of buying a shop or buying a, going a club or a bar or, you know, licensed club. Areas that I'm seeing even in Brisbane over, the, over this period of time have been fraught with danger if, uh, as far as being able to keep the business going for an extended period of time uh, because the industry you know, is what it is. And uh, if you haven't really, if you're just walking in without too much of a plan, you're, you're just gone. Have you seen what? Do you, what have you seen yeah, as far well, as licensed <coughs> clubs and bars and that sort of thing? Well, coming back to the fun, fundamental thing, there is, yeah, we're being told more and more these days. You know, live your dream, live your dream. You know, follow your passion. And a lot of people would have a passion of owning a bar or owning a shop. You know, I remember back in the eighties, you go up the Hunter Valley and you think, oh, it'd be great to own a winery yeah, and yeah. you know have your own little stash of these great wines yeah. and bring out. To, yeah dinner parties but is that sensible do you have the skill sets and do you understand the business and the risks and I think it's too easy for people to go into a business without fully understanding the implications not knowing whether they've really got the skills or not fully appreciating all the complexities and the level of competition there's more and more competition out there and you've got to turn around and say, well, you know, if I'm going to take business away from someone else, they're not going to sit there and say, great, Tim, you've just taken 20% of my business. Fantastic, mate. Well done. They're going to fight back. And therefore, how are you going to manage that? And so I think as much as once again we're taught to try to have a glass-full approach to life, it's not bad sometimes to have a glass half empty to think about what the risks are and how do you mitigate. And I, you know, I can give you lots of examples. I remember sitting and didn't tell my brother-in-law and he and his wife, who'd been very successful in business, had just sold a uh, franchise that built it up to number two in the state, number four I think in Australia, and they were looking at businesses back here in Brisbane. And over the dinner table, they probably talked to me about five or six business and I raised all these concerns and issues about each of them and they didn't proceed with any of them. They ended up buying another business. They did well out of it. Well, that's good. But it is thinking about all the risks. Yeah. And I don't think – and doing the due diligence. People don't do enough and they're not – you know, they don't want to spend the money on getting professional advice to look at the problems. And, you know, I can give countless examples yeah. of how yeah. we've helped people recognise the problems of buying a business or what, and then talking about what they can do. Um, and one of the things I'm doing, moving more into coaching and advising people, because I've run over 120-odd businesses. I've sold 70 or 80 businesses over my career and I've shut down a lot. Of just being there is somewhere there they can bounce and saying, "Is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? You know, let's talk about the risk factors. Um, and how do you, you know, how do you have an exit plan?" Steve Covey, one of his habits, seven habits, is start with the end in mind. The venture capitalists, the p- private equity, have always got their exit strategy worked out before they start. So, how many business owners don't know their exit? when they go and buy in the business? What's their vision? If they've got a clear vision, document it, plan. Don't stick rigid to it. Adapt and move with yep. those things time and keep talking to your accountant about these things. Yep, definitely. Definitely. So, 
That's some really good advice, Peter. That's uh, some excellent sort of insight into you know some some I guess some advice that people listening to the podcast they wanting to know a bit about you know what what it, uh, is out there when it comes to you know running a business and trying to avoid some pitfalls and things they really need to sort of uh, take into consideration from a being able to fund the business uh, type view as well. Um, so I guess. Um, Coming back to what Kestrel sort of does, so you you sort of specialise more in the sort of turnaround solutions. So, yep. um, I guess, and you also uh, you are a registered liquidator, aren't you? So, I am, yeah. So, I guess there's obviously two two different uh, things going on there when it comes to Peter yep. Lucas um, that you obviously got to focus on. So, uh, I guess your what you sort of get more most enjoyment out of is, I guess, being able to utilise the turnaround solutions, be able to see a business sort of go back up. I, I, I right love direction. seeing I love seeing businesses survive and prosper. You know, and, and we've you know you mentioned about licensed clubs and there's a lot of uh, uh, pressure on licensed clubs at the moment, uh, with low wage growth and etc. Uh, online gambling and things like that. So they're under in hotels doing uh, the hospitality really well so they're under pressure so we do a lot in that space and you know without being able to name names there's a couple of clubs down the coast which we're involved in doing turnarounds and developing strategies that are really booming there's one out in the western suburbs you know it's making you know this goes back two or three years a couple of million dollars a year funding expansions out of cash flow when it was in a whisker of closing down and I won't take all the credit but certainly I played a significant role in developing the strategies and turning the business around and getting the regulators on side etc so it becomes a team effort and there's no more satisfying uh, thing than than suing a business we we did a I did a voluntary administration about 10 years ago an asbestos removal asbestos removal and demolition business in 10 weeks we grew up from 25 staff to 75 staff and made over a million dollars profit after my fees. So it can be done. You've got to get a few things. And certainly, informal turnarounds are a lot cheaper. And, of course, reputationally, people don't know about it compared to formal appointments. Once again, that's about early mm. intervention. And we're moving beyond coming in and just giving them a, a roadmap to fixing their problems to actually mm. helping them with the implementation mm. and supporting providing support and coaching, mm. you know, be a cro- shoulder to cry on when things are going a bit tough, kick them up the backside when they're not, when doing, they're the right not doing the right thing and being there to just be advised because, Tim, you're a small business owner. You've got a partner. But if you're a sole trader, who would you go and talk to about your problems and mm. your, how you're feeling about the business and how to bounce things off, etc.? It's good to have someone... Yeah, I, I guess uh, through networks and stuff, you obviously can. I sort of will talk to you know lots of different people about different things that are, that are going on either in the business or yep. if I'm going to get something out of it. I only make the contact with the people that I, you know, obviously uh, um, that I want to bounce the ideas off and mm-hmm. that sort of thing as well. So it's important that you know who you sort of led into your own little circle of yeah. of where you're going. Um, and people, Australians, and you know. Are very proud people, so they're often not too keen to talk about their problems in the business. They tend to be always, you know, yep, business going great, business going great. And I can remember being in a meeting and go around, we had a market sentiment session every day, every meeting. And we go around the room and someone said, yeah, things are going great, things are going great. And one person said, yeah, yeah things aren't too bad, etc. The day before, that person was whinging to me about how bad things were going. Mm. And so it's a natural Australian tendency to sometimes over-talk. So yeah, it is important yeah. to have some people where you can be really honest with about and who will support you. Mm. Yeah, and that's that's really important for small business owners. Mm. I guess um, I was only going to touch on this uh, a little bit. With I think it's great that you you know you were a, you were a rugby league referee for for ten years yeah. and and. Uh, I think, tell you uh, some funny stories about that. <laughs> so, well, maybe one, but uh, Bill Harrigan, I think you had some a connection with him, didn't you? Yeah, I got 
I um, I refereed in the Newtown Juniors the way Sydney worked. Each club had their own district competition. They had junior representative games, which was President's Cup, Jersey Flag. So I did two A-grade grand finals in, in Newtown in, and then also refereeing President's Cup. And Bill Harrigan and I got graded the same year. And I was... Uh, and the way it worked, you'd be a touch judge in third grade. You'd get a few games in the centre, then go back out, and usually three or four. And I, refer- I was Bill's touch... One of his touch judges in his first grade game, I remember well, uh, up at Brookvale Oval, and there was a brawl in the first ten minutes, and he sent one of the Newtown players, which is a well-known guy up here called John Elias, played first grade for South up here, to the sin bin. And with about five minutes to go, he sent him to the sin bin for a second time, and Bill got dropped after the first game, and obviously he wasn't quite ready for it at that time, and then came back in late years, and of course Bill's big attribute was he was about ten times fitter than the next fittest guy in the in the whole refereeing rank, so he he put us all to shame doing all the runs, etc. Training, so so it was, yeah, lots of story, but it was very you know very beneficial from uh, a personal development point of view. You learn a lot about yourself under the pressure of uh, refereeing a, uh, a game, and in Newtown Juniors, a pretty tough competition, so. Yeah, you, it built your resilience and your decision-making capabilities. Yeah, so certainly the, the skill set you get as that sort of obviously correspond to to be able to put stuff into play when you're sort of doing, you know, being a professional accountant or yep. insolvency practitioner, business owner, etc. So um, it, it's, uh, I mean, we, there's a lot of different things we could potentially talk about. Obviously, you, you, you obviously dealt with so many different uh, business owners over the course of time, so... Uh, but obviously one of the buzzwords, you tell me what you think, but one of the buzzwords more in recent years, it's certainly an issue, mental health of owners. What, what is this? It's, sort- a, it's a huge issue. Mm. Um, you know, I'm about, I was talking to a, the wife of a director of a hotel. He's 77 years of age. She's 75. They so bought they're it. old then. They're old. They bought. For a hotel. Owners, they bought yeah. the leasehold three years ago. And you wonder about the Why? advice, the due diligence, the uh, bank lending the money, and the rent's too high. They're getting nowhere with the landlord, um, and the stress they're under. Why do they think it was a good idea? Well, they've had pubs in the past, and thought they could make it work. Mm. And from a trading perspective, it's certainly it looked good. It well, it certainly has improved. Mm. If you look at the top line numbers, they've improved, but. You can't approve enough to cover the rent. And so they made a fundamental mistake in buying it. Yep. But just the pressure. And it is mental, the mental health issues are enormous. I've had a number of times directors uh, talk to me, they're thinking about suicide. Yeah. Um, and all the spouse of you the director. A lot of that. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, I've, you know, it is. And, you know, People once again hide those sorts of uh, pressures, and you know that's really dangerous because they're going to make some bad decisions. And you got to wonder, you know. Um, and I say in one of the stories, I had a director come in, in cleaning business, and you know, very upset. Once again, seventy odd years of age, he's still got a six hundred grand debt with the bank sitting over his house. I said to him at the meeting, I said, and I'll say his name is John. John. Do you, do you like a drink? He said, yeah. He said, look, go home, take your wife to your local BYO restaurant, buy a nice bottle of wine, catch a cab, enjoy dinner, do not talk about the business, talk about the things, the really good things of when you first met, first got together, first got married, etc., and just try to enjoy the night. Well, he's been sending me Christmas cards and little notes for about the last five or six years or ten years. Mm. He'll ring me every so often. And one of the things, he always thanks me for that advice because at the end of the day, money's money, Mm -hmm. but your life, your health, your relationships are more important. And it's a proven fact that financial stress is one of the major causes of relationship breakdowns. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the more we can do to help, and I think... The professions, accountants and lawyers have got to start really thinking about and looking for the signs of when their clients are starting to show signs. 
of mental health and now accountants with cloud accounting you can see the numbers almost daily if you wanted to to see how your clients are traveling rather than getting a set of financials you know almost 12 months after the event and mm. saying, well what's what's yeah. happened since then now you can be keeping yeah. an eye on mm. your clients from, from a month-to-month perspective mm. and and being have the courage to have those questions and dialogue around their mental health mm. and technology certainly uh, allowed that to happen it's it's certainly been huge with the cloud technology and will only sort of be more enhanced over the next uh, decade or so when it comes to being so visible and just, mm. just we're sort of getting in a, into an area that's just less and less to hide uh, when, when we're seeing all of this sort of thing going single, on. Single-touch payroll, yep. you know, and super, and there's going to be coming in the tax office um, disclosing uh, non-payers yep. to the credit reporting agencies and personal liability. It's all there to design to, you know, get people to action problems sooner mm. um, and it's better to fail quickly mm. than fail big. Mm. Probably last thing to do with uh, business I wanted to talk about was probably the uh, just on the building industry in, in southeast Queensland, uh, QBCC. We've seen a lot of changes with QBCC from the BSA days um, just in the, over the last 10 years. Uh, I guess what what do you think of the the finance? What do you think generally? Every 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 business is going to be different, but what's the general feeling that you're getting uh, from the financial health of I guess all the the uh, businesses in the building industry here in Southeast Queensland? Look, um, I actually put a submission into the QBCC when they came out about reintroducing the financial reporting, uh, supporting it, because I think in a way. The more businesses understand where they're sitting financially on a regular basis, the better decisions they can make about their business. Um, so I don't think it's a bad bad thing. Whether all the ratios are the right ratios as far as you know net assets to turn to turnovers, etc. I think that's the case. Do there need to be more? Uh, Consultation and businesses are getting a bit of trouble to try to work them through to see where they they can. Uh, I think definitely should be. Suspensions are really serious thing because as soon as it's out publicly that a builder's license suspended, it's almost a death knell. You know, it can be. So I think there needs to be another phase in there where they try to work through, but understand and really understand the the business. Once again, it comes to this capitalisation and it's traditional. You know, the margins in the building game are so thin that so often it's been the next job's paying the last job's debts. And so if you get a hiccup in the workflow, hits your cash flow, which then crashes. And people have got to learn how to sell not not on price. And I think we've got to start seeing a change in, even from government, where the cheapest should not always be the one that wins the work. Because then you're starting to see the corners being cut, mm. and you know we've got the problems down in Sydney with Opal Tower and yeah. Mascot, etc. How many problems are there up here? Because be the subbies are under pressure to cut corners and make a buck because they're being squeezed by the big builders, who've been squeezed by the developers. You know, um, something's ultimately got to give in that regard, where people have got to get a fair profit. And get paid a fair price for their risk and for their risk and the work they're yeah. doing, just like the unions want the employees to get paid a fair wage, but they've also got to do a fair day's work for that fair wage. Yeah. Uh, just on that, I mean, I, I still think remuneration for people working in that industry is still fairly at a decent level. It hasn't sort of, mm. it's not really a backscale or, or anything like that, which you, you may expect over time, but it's. It's certainly, um, from what I'm seeing, it's the you know the, the paying in that industry is 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 more than adequate, uh, but there's obviously some risks involved as we as we sort of alluded to. Um, obviously, one of your passions is golf, and I do thank you very much for coming along to to the charity golf days over the last few years. That's for sure. Uh, last uh, it's been my pleasure, Tim. Um, 
So, yeah, it was really great to have you three weeks ago, actually, and uh, a big supporter of the day and uh, donating some money to MS, I think it was in particular, yeah. that was yeah. your chosen charity. Um, do you have any sort of, with MS, do you have any sort of connection there or was it just yeah, something? My, that... No, no, my ex-brother-in-law who um, is now has had to retire because uh, he got MS. Uh, he's a very good sportsman. He's, I think his golf handicap de- got down to about 80. He only started golf after he, well, well after he retired from playing baseball. His second game of golf was the day of my wedding, but, uh, and I could see then how well he hit the ball. So seeing someone sort of get diagnosed with MS and the uh, impacts that have on their lives, etc. Uh, I've got a client whose wife's, uh, one, a consultant whose wife's got MS, and a neighbour that his wife was uh, with has MS as well. So I've seen it, so that resonates. Uh, but, you know, there's so many worthy charities out there, sometimes you've got to make some decisions and you pick those that are sort of a bit closer to you than yeah. maybe others. Yeah, no, it's... Yeah, definitely um, the ones that are close to your heart, but um, it's it's certainly good to be able to support them as well and be able yeah. to uh, help those uh, charities uh, with their fundraising and and that sort of thing. I mean, obviously, charities generally in Australia, um, there's a lot of. I mean, what I'm seeing is a lot of people like to support lots of different charities in Australia. Uh, so there's certainly going to always be a market um, when it comes to those charities to be able to for their research activities for. Uh, donating to worthy uh, individuals or groups that that may need those funds, so it's it's a great culture that we've got here in Australia. And really, that's one of the things I really love about this country that we can actually go out and do that. And and, uh, and, and oh, and it's incredibly important, you know. And you know, in talking about research, I've just recently sold a medical research company um, business. It's the first time I've, I've, I was appointed administrator of this medical research business uh, back in about April. April, May, and we're able to get a sale as a going concern. Uh, and when I was appointed, they were partway through a clinical trial, human clinical trial. So to me, it was important to try to keep the business going and to get a quick sale so that research can continue on. I was talking to the uh, medical director of that uh, business, who's now linked with the new one, and he said they've just secured their first uh, next lot of uh, funding and that's to, to try to get a vaccine to treat uh, uh, neck and head cancers. Uh, so, you know, that's important stuff. Mm. You know, far more important than, you know, winning a golf day or, you, <laughs> know, the, you know, having some success in business. But, you know, trying to help, uh, um, you know, human beings are in tougher times than what we are is uh, incredibly important. And I think we've got a duty to to do that to the extent that we can. Mm, definitely. No, it's been a it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. We nearly racked up an hour, believe it or not. It's, it goes time <laughs> yeah, does very go quick, quickly, Tim. and there's lots of different things I'm sure that we could we could talk about. We might even get might even get you to come back sometime before June next end of June next year or something like uh, that. Love to, Tim. It's been uh, a pleasure to uh, and talk a bit more about it. We didn't really touch on things like um, uh, you know, obviously been involved in the CA for a long time, and you and you sort of run that group that. Uh, that I sort of uh, that Paul and myself go to, and yeah. a, a bit about some of the those stories with the CA because I think that's that's still a that's still a very important thing that you're part of, uh, and there might be some other stories as well. Yeah. So th- thank you very much for uh, coming yeah. on the podcast. Any sort of final words for the yeah, day? Yeah, look, one thing, and I've been saying this now for a while to small business owners about it, you know, because people are talking about time, and we've all got the same amount of time, so it's all about how we allocate it. And as small business owner, I think there's three areas you've got to Three broad areas have got to allocate their time. One is working on the business, which they're being told, which is around planning and strategizing. It's working in the business. Most small business owners don't have the luxury of having a, that successful business. They can just step back and leave managers running it. So they've got to recognise, I've actually got to do the stuff I'm doing. But accounting work, legal work, a plumber or whatever, I've actually got to do it. And some of the networking stuff is not working on the business. It's networking that's in the business because that's part of the marketing, the planning of what networking you're going to do. The third area, which is now often forgotten about, is the self-development. The business owners have got to continue to develop themselves. They might 
be doing in a technical sense because they've got requirements to do a certain amount of technical training. Like we as a chartered accountants have so many hours of professional development we've got to do every year. But it's also developing your management skills. How do we become better managers? Because we've got a very volatile and fast-moving world. The owners have got to try to keep pace and it's really having good management skills. So developing that and understanding how businesses operate uh, is really important. So I think people have got to allocate time to those three areas and doing it really every week and having that discipline to do it. Yeah. And that's help hopefully make people more successful in their businesses. Excellent. Very wise words. Thank you very much for your insights, Peter. It's been a pleasure to have you here, and it's a great way to finish the week. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim, for the opportunity to come and uh, have a few words with you.